Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The war in Ukraine looks set to continue for a long time. There was a 90-minute discussion today on trying to find some sort of resolution between the two sides, but that got nowhere. Russia would accept a ceasefire if Ukraine surrendered. That is their middle ground. So there's a long way to go. Meanwhile, the West is imposing more sanctions on Russia. Putin spoke calmly today at a press conference about how they will manage these increasing impositions from the West. So they are going to try and make their way through it. Or will these sanctions be the nail in the coffin for Putin's plans? Or will they just make him more resolute? In short... Does the idea of economic isolationism work in circumstances like this? We're going to look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So the tactic for trying to get Russia back in its box is to isolate it as much as possible. So uh, don't buy oil from them. Don't let them have nice things like Chanel or Christian Dior. Rid them of McDonald's, which actually probably will make them healthier. Uh, We should rid ourselves of McDonald's, really. And more to the point, stop them using money with Visa, MasterCard and Amex pulling out. Although... That's not going to have impact. It's only when people try and renew their cards. It's going to have impact. And uh, But removing Russia from the SWIFT banking system, that's had uh, an immediate impact. But will it work? What happens when you try and destroy a country economically? Don't they eventually lash out, particularly if they have nothing to lose? Uh, for example, what can we learn about the Weimar Republic in that period between World War One and World War Two? So, Steve, I mean, does economic isolationism work? Is it a good idea? Well, I mean, work for whom? I mean, if you look at this, this is an attempt to punish a country by isolating it economically. But one of the side effects of that is that, you, you know, the country it still has to try to function. Um, let's, let's say you manage to cut it off from computer chips, for example, which is a huge restriction in modern uh, society, then it's going to have to try to find its own way of creating that technology. Now, it's going to be struggling to do it to begin with because it hasn't got the, necessarily got the, um, well, it hasn't got the production facilities point blank. Does it have the skilled personnel and the capacity to make the machines that make the chips? Um, that's, that's the other side of things. And in some countries with cases where there's been some form of cutoff, uh, the best example is probably America itself after the uh, War of Independence. Um, a large part of that was uh, it, it prevented America um, you know, using British imports of British steel, and uh, it, wasn't, it would have been iron at the time rather than steel. Um, but that meant that Americans had to produce their own iron. And what you got out of that was the growth of America's manufacturing sector and Michael Hudson's PhD thesis, which I must admit I still have yet to read, uh, but to make amends there, is called America's Protectionist Takeoff. So, so, we, might, so we might be helping Russia on that basis, because, yeah. I mean, they, they are a nation which is very much dig the minerals out of the ground and ship them out. I mean, they don't do a lot else, really. Except for you know, they've been. Well, the, the, the other, the other, but the other, they, they, but they do have the technological capability. Mm. This is the other side about Russian society. First of all, of course, 
until Elon Musk came along, they were the world's dominant producer of functional rockets. Mm. And they still, and Musk still reckons that the, the rocket that the Russians are still using uh, was the second best uh, rocket engine ever invented, the best one being the one that Musk has now created for the, um, for the Starship. So, and also when you look, when you actually, if you say you wanted to get a well-trained mathematician uh, and somebody says, I've did my degree in Russia, that's the end of your questioning because you know if anybody who gets a degree in mathematics in Russia is damn well trained. It's, it's a ridiculous number of, the, of significant theorems in applied mathematics have a Russian name attached to them. So in terms of uh, level of education, uh, technological capability, um, then they've got that foundation. They're very clunky. Um, if, uh, if, if you look at the... Um, you know, the, the, the form that some forms of Soviet technology took, they're pretty clunky compared to the West. But it would be feasible for Russia to build its own capability over time. Um, so you'd be creating somebody who could come back and compete with you at some point. Right. So it could help them then. I mean, we've talked about this, haven't we, how protectionism at, at stages can be uh, can, can be a good thing. They've got that, you know, the, the capability. They are also, uh, you know, self-sufficient in food as well. So uh, uh, the repercussions of a, of a Russia, which is just a, a, a closed-off nation down the track, is a, is a little bit scary. But in terms of people surviving and the economy uh, growing, it could all it could all work out for them. It could. I mean, it's a it's a hell of a challenge. Particularly when you look at integrated circuits, it's a hell of a challenge to to build production facilities of the complexity that are necessary for you know, sub-micron CPUs, um, let alone the, 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 all the remaining technology that goes with that. And of course, that applies to the whole West as well, because almost all these things are made in Taiwan these days. Um, so if America wanted to produce its own chips, it's got a hell of a struggle ahead of, its, ahead of itself. And it certainly would never get to the it would take a long, long time to get to the stage where it could compete with Taiwanese manufacturing. Right, but for so, Russia, I mean, they could they could side with China, and uh, China takes over Taiwan, and then it's all part of uh, the, the one big happy family. <laughs> That's one thing which everybody is think is fairly comfortably saying has become less likely after the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, well, let's hope so. But I mean, it's it's interesting though, isn't it? Because you know, where do you draw the line on on what the boundaries are as you sanction uh, Russia? Because you can, you know, for example, you can stop Russian airlines flying to your country, uh, and they'll retaliate. But you look uh, look at who's flying over Russian airspace at the moment: Chinese Airlines, Middle Eastern Airlines, Indian Airlines. They're still all flying there. You can stop their money finding safe haven in your country but the oligarchs now are moving more of it to the united arab emirates so if you're going to uh practice isolationism the question is you know where how how wide do you set the boundaries if if china does say so do, do you include the uae do you include india you know in sanctions do if if china continues to trade with with russia do you say well okay we're going to introduce more sanctions or at least more tariffs against china i mean it's impossible to just isolate one country isn't it so i'm just wondering how practical it is in reality well i mean it's you're going to be cutting off uh, for example again talking about the chip industry apparently most of the technology that makes uh, microchips is actually produced in the Netherlands. Mm. So if you say that the uh, European Union, you, you, you can no longer trade with Russia, um, then it's not possible for Russia to say, okay, we need to buy our own machines from China because China apparently does not yet make those machines or certainly doesn't, if it makes them, doesn't make them to the same precision as the, as the, uh, the Dutch company that makes those, those, those chip making machines right now. 
So you're going to slow people down, but you're also going to encourage them to start developing their own domestic capability. And I think... Yeah, so... And in terms of global warming coming our way, uh, one thing which is going to happen very rapidly is is a collapse of these long supply chains. Uh, We're not going to be able to, uh, you know, part of the reason why these supply chains work was because international shipping was cheap. Uh, If you now find that international shipping is not cheap or even worse, um, the volume has to drop radically because we're no longer going to allow um, uh, boats with you know, diesel-powered engines to traverse the oceans as we are at the moment, then you get a dramatic increase in the cost of shipping those goods and you end up with an um, inability to... Uh, well, you're going to end up with in, in, in price inflation uh, and, and a reduction in supply of those goods. Yeah. So it's, it, it may be, it'll be advantageous for a lot of countries to be able to be self-sufficient uh, in, the, in the world in which we're moving into. But it, it doesn't that increase the prospect, you know, if we have that more protectionist world, doesn't that increase the, the likelihood that we are going to breed war? Because, you know, part of the reason for the EU, obviously, was after the after the war, you know, let's let's all start trading so we don't start blowing each other's heads off. If you go back to a more protectionist world, that, that sort of disappears. Uh, and in, couldn't it actually make more war more likely? Because countries with scarce resources need to expand. I mean, the British Empire is a perfect example of that, isn't it? You know, just take over a country because you need their resources. Uh, So isn't there a danger that, you know, it's going to head to a a new imperialism where everyone becomes self-contained and rather than trading with countries, they're just trying to take them over? Well, this actually is what led to Japan getting involved in the Second World War, the belief that it had to actually control the regions it was taking raw materials from for its industry. And, um, you know, in that sense, I think you're right that the world we're going into is, is if, we, if we do start seeing a, a breakdown uh, caused by global warming on, uh, on globalised industry, and, and you then say, well, what's, what's the capacity of a particular country to move, say, from fossil fuel-based energy and fossil fuel-based transportation to uh, minerals-based, which is what is the case when you're using solar power or, or wind or turbines, um, then it's the availability of minerals that become important. And because they're unevenly distributed across the world, um, the countries which have, for example, lithium deposits, and that's Australia and Chile are two of the major ones there, uh, could decide that they were going to use that for their own uh, purposes rather than for uh, international trade in that sort of future world. And therefore, you would have other countries being unable to do what they want to do because they can't buy the minerals. So, yes, you could get a rise, you know, a form of global global, global warming imperialism coming mm. out of it. Well, you don't have to look too far. To, so if you look at the Russian example, uh, just, you know, with, with, with fossil fuels and... Uh, you know they've got they've got soldiers in Azerbaijan. Uh, we've got a puppet leader. Uh, they've got a pipeline running through there. Wonder whether that's coincidence. They they wanted to take control out of uh, out of Georgia, which they're also using a pipeline there to get oil to Turkey. Uh, Ukraine is another significant part of another Russian gas pipeline. It seems like you know with Russia, a lot of territory is being fought over. Coincidentally, trade routes. Uh, because you've got an economy which is almost entirely dependent on resource extraction and exporting it. So it can't be that isolationist while it's dependent on exporting fossil fuels. 
but if we isolate them, then they are going to be forced down the road of trying to develop a more domestic-based economy, like China is trying to do, obviously, as well, become less export-focused, more domestic-focused, which you think is a good thing, except for it, it does breed this imperialism. Yeah, and if you do have you know, essential resources, which um, some countries have and others uh, no longer have, uh, just don't have those resources, and then the countries are talking about that don't have them, other other industrial powers, then yes, they could decide, well, if you don't give it, if you don't sell it to us, we're going to get it from you, or we're going to incorporate you in our, you know, uh, uh, sphere of cooperation, and you would get a, a rise of the types of wars that, it, you know, that Japan waged mm. during the Second World War yeah. to try to secure those supply routes. I, except, of course, right. it's it, these days it's very often the countries that have those resources which are the protagonists. So like Russia, for example, uh, just trying to secure its supply routes for what it's already got that it's trying to flog. Uh, you look at uh, you know countries in the Middle East, they are very often the protagonists as well, aren't they? Because they've got the minerals, the, the, the fossil fuels. They feel uh, like uh, they can call all the shots so uh, wh- wh- where does that take us then if we switch from fossil fuels to more mineral extraction then you've got countries like australia does australia start wielding power does australia start behaving like uh, saudi arabia for example and how do we stop that happening well i don't know i'm gonna say i mean it, it is it's a scary prospect just because you're seeing it's starting from a an actual military conflict and there is you know as well as the Russian imperialism uh, elements of the invasion, you've also got that resource availability uh, of the Ukraine that Russia wanted to wanted to incorporate. So we, we're starting off with an example of imperialist behaviour. And when you think about it in terms of if we find, for example, we can't use fossil fuels anymore, like the, the set of catastrophes that make the flooding in, in Australia recently look trivial, um, and therefore there's a global recognition we can't use fossil fuels anymore, then you're going to have to have an incredibly rapid transition to solar power and nuclear, and, um, and it's going to be lithium, thorium. Uh, those, those are the you know, essential elements of this of a... Um, of a post-fossil fuel industry, and that ends up being countries like uh, Australia, Chile, I think South South Africa as well. Um, but if they then say, well, looking at the global demand, uh, if we're going to maintain the level of industry we used to have, um, the demand far outstrips what's available as a supply, do we become autocratic, or, uh, autocratic and hang on to that for our own uses? And maintain, you know, Australia would have enough lithium and enough thorium, for example, to start it to fully fuel itself either with um, solar power or with nuclear if it wanted to. But uh, that's not going to be the case for America, Mm. not going to be the case for Japan. And if you say we're going to be autocratic about it and and basically screw you, we're then saying back, well, we, you can't, we're going to try to maintain our uh, level of standard of living, you can't do it for yours. Um, that is a world where, yes, you could see military conflict coming out over the availability of minerals again. Yeah, and you could see it uh, countries forming blocks, couldn't you? So the United States would say uh, to Australia, "Look, yeah, you're our best mate, so let's uh, you know let's up our, our 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 trading block and let's look after you because we need to get hold of those uh, those mineral resources that you've got there." Uh, and then other people will be left out in the cold, which is obviously what we're trying to do with with Russia at the moment. Let's what what could we do uh, with with Russia that's not going to repeat what happened to Germany between the wars as well? Let's just look at this from a different angle because the Treaty of Versailles basically 
uh, sort of put an end to democracy in a way, isn't it? Because the people of the Weimar Republic were so indignant about the reparations um, that they would do anything to, you know, to try and get back at the rest of the world, really, which is what what put Hitler into power. Well, actually, I think think we can look at America's behaviour towards Russia over the last 30 years, and they've actually done, you know, if you wanted to see a a script that they could have read from to do it, it's what the French tried to do to the Germans, and the Americans tried to do it to the Russians. And now, in that sense, yes, we are recreating the conditions of World War II, um, because it was the attempt by the French at the Versailles Treaty to cripple Germany permanently that led to the rise of, of, of Nazism in Germany. And yeah. like as, as much as we know, which is a bit, which is a bit like yeah. Russian people saying, "Oh, well, we'll put up with Putin now, perhaps, even if yeah. they knew exactly what was going on, because uh, at least he's on our side." So we're rather than learning from history, we're, we're repeating it once more. So, so on, on that basis, this what we're doing is exactly the wrong thing. I mean, we uh, hopefully hopefully we get over this fairly quickly. We we reach some sort of treaty over Ukraine. And our response should be to sit down with Russia and say, "Well, how can we work together better now? How can exactly. we trade? How can we yeah. trade with you more? Uh, how can we help you invest in things that aren't necessarily destructive?" Uh, and and the green future might be might be part of it. Whether you can do that with Putin or not is a question. I mean, I think he's too far gone, isn't he? Well, I think we don't. And maybe he's too far gone internationally, but he's not necessarily too far gone back in Russia. Um, yeah. uh, it may be a case of what happens if, if you know, if, if the Russian army loses the conflict, which, you know, except for the fact they've got weapons which could wipe Ukraine out straight away if they wanted, if they're willing to use those weapons. Um, it, it, his, his, if, if, the, if, if they don't actually go that far and the Russians get pushed out of Ukraine, then in that situation, Putin is weakened. But... I saw a comment, uh, a very wise one. America has paid a huge price for not trying a Marshall Plan approach to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think that what we're mm. seeing, they've done the opposite. They've done a Versailles Treaty approach to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. In fact, they tried to cause that uh, collapse to be like having World War One all, all over again for Russia. And that is what actually enabled the rise of Putin in the first place and has now led to this conflict. So um, so what would a, mar- a Marshall Plan type approach would be therefore like saying, well, how can we invest more money into Russia to help you diversify and help you become a stronger economy. That's yeah, and, and how do we boost incomes after the uh, transition rather than crushing them? Because again, what, mm-hmm. I mean, this this is where the insane, uh, you know, so-called shock therapy approach of mainstream economists was totally disastrous. And then that naive garbage that people like at the time, Jeffrey Sachs, is no, no longer naive, but certainly played a role uh, in, in, in this belief that the transition should be rapid. That was then used, as Sachs said, you know, that conversation with me way back in, in London about five, six years ago, uh, that the American State Department saw that as a way of, 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 of eliminating Russia completely. Mm. You can't eliminate a country unless you eliminate its people completely. And that isn't exactly what the Americans were intending. So what they did was they created the bear they're now fighting. Right, but I mean, that bear is an, largely an isolated bear, and if it wasn't quite so isolated, if it was welcomed into the bosom of the uh, the world community in a more embraceable fashion, uh, maybe we wouldn't be prodding it so much. More hugging, less prodding. Uh, and, you know, it, and it, the fact that they basically do rely on exporting minerals does make them... Uh, very susceptible, doesn't it, to, to international trade. Whereas if they were part of the EU, for example, and part of a broader community, we wouldn't be having these problems. So maybe this idea of isolationism and protectionism 
isn't as good as the idea of more global trade, which, of course, was always the idea. It was the idea behind the EU anyway in the first place, wasn't it, to stop us having another world war in Europe, which is now what we're seeing. I think it's also, it isn't just, you know, you can't say protectionism in isolation here. It's, it's protectionism in an age of, of, of resource, lack of availability of essential resources. And that's that's what's different about the situation. And when you talk about when when Michael Hudson talked about America's protectionist takeoff, there was no shortage of anything uh, at the time. You know, you had the wide open spaces, the, the the manifest destiny for the prairie and the heading heading westwards, and uh, an enormous. Um, you know, capability to sell those products on the global market as well. Um, that isn't the case this time. If you're actually saying we simply don't have enough resources for us to maintain the energy levels that are necessary for maintain our modern standard of living, um, and then countries say, well, we want to hang on to enough to maintain ours, then you you no longer have trade as a sense of mm. advantage. You have trade being undertaken because if you don't you're going to get invaded right but if we had blocks like trading blocks rather than individual companies wouldn't that countries wouldn't that solve that problem to, to some power extent? blocks i wouldn't say right. as much trading as power mm. uh because you know if if you like if, if if again looking at simon's research on the availability of things like lithium for example the amount of lithium we'd need to replace the amount of oil we currently use for generating energy um, if we've only got one tenth as much as is necessary then and yet, and yet the country that has that has got two or three times what it needs for its own purposes um, then if it tries to hang on to a hundred percent of what it needs and it'll export a small amount of the remainder it's selling the rest of the world you've got to deal with less energy and when you talk saying that to countries which are military powers uh, and they're saying well why can't we you know do the transition of course australia won't sell us the minerals um you know, it's not a very pleasant reason to get involved in international yeah. trade. So a, a power block, which well, okay, it's why won't we? Why won't we invade Australia and uh, and take their their mineral resources because they've got these uh, these heavies sitting behind them, uh, who they are providing their mineral resources mm. to. So the world gets divided, doesn't it? Again, be, be, yeah. Oh, gee, that, that, that's there's a, a happy thought, isn't there? But I mean, on the other side, if if you have countries working together as trading blocks and they're sharing expertise and knowledge, then isn't the hope that those those, those blocks would would find, would work on alternatives? You know, that so you, they're almost behaving like big countries because they've got a common net. They've got a common goal. How can we make the standard of living better for everybody? So, so for example, you know, you, you talked about, you know, the intelligence, you know, Russians, very smart people. Imagine if they were part of the EU, for example. Would, I mean, how, how much safer would the world be if Russia was actually just part of this big trading block? Well, it should have been part of NATO in that sense, not have the political division. That's the, and that's the thing which yeah. Putin's got a legitimate gripe over. Um, right, but that, but that, but, but that is a, a, that's a military force, whereas I'm actually talking about, you know, a, a, a trading force where there's a, there's a common aim. You know, we just say, yep, Europe, Europe stretches right from the east coast of Russia to the, uh, to the west coast of, uh, of Portugal. Yeah, well, I mean, again, as long as they didn't have the, the euro currency itself, that's another another issue again. Um, <laughs> we could get rid of that. It's uh, <laughs> part, uh, part of the agreement. Have we ever got a mess of a world? But I mean, we're, but we can. But you know, we can. One thing that we have realised with COVID is that we can work to. Even though we haven't obviously got rid of COVID, and we we seem to have. Uh, assume that it was over before it's over uh but you know we did work together as a 
largely as a planet to try and fix that. It was certainly as the Western world and, and Asian countries anyway. The, the, the rich parts of the world work together to try and fix that. We showed what could be done if there was a, a, a common short-term goal. Yeah, so I mean, the, the question is, what is the capability of maintaining current living standards um, mm. in, in the world in which we're passing into, where you have to use minerals to extract energy from the sun uh, rather than, rather than using, digging up ancient energy in the form of oil and coal? And uh, if there's insufficiency of that, then you have to have an international agreement to drop living standards. And if you do that on a national level, then I think you're going to have nothing but the sort of conflictual world you and I have been talking about. If you do it in terms of income distribution and say that's the rich who have to consume less and the rich who have to lose command over resources and we maintain the living standards of the poor as much as we can, then you've got some sense of... Um, Potential to restrict consumption without it causing a crushing burden on the majority of the population. But if it does end up being a crushing burden on the majority of the population, then I think the sort of imperialist world you and I have been talking about here is quite a possibility. But that's all driven by scarcity, isn't it? This time it is, yeah. We, we've never had the situation of scarcity on the scale. Well, uh, we, 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 with scarce resources in the genuine sense, there simply isn't enough minerals to enable us to maintain that lifestyle if we transit from a fossil fuel world and we know we can't continue using fossil fuels. But I wonder whether, because wars in the past have been fought by greed, haven't they? We need uh, we need more resources so that we can grow and have a better standard of living. Now we're saying, well, okay, no, we need to we need to grab more of what someone else has got to maintain what we've got already. Uh, and uh, but I mean that that's a pretty shallow argument, isn't it? Because ultimately you'll say, well, okay, we can't do that forever uh, because will chew up, chew up all of those resources as well. And uh, all we're doing is delaying the inevitable. There needs to be, you need to work as a planet on trying to find something which is going to help everybody to grow, surely. I mean, I'm sounding like a huge idealist here, but even, even you know, the, the most fundamental imperialist would realise that if you are trying to grab a limited resource by taking it where it exists somewhere else, you're just going, to, going to chew it up and burn it out and you're going to be no better off. You're just going to be 10 years further down the track if you haven't started World War Three in the process. So surely there's, there's, at some point the world is going to say, OK, we've got to stop this isolationism. We've got a, uh, we've got a big issue with, the, uh, with how we maintain our living standards without destroying the planet. We need to work together on this. And so therefore we need to unify. And some countries have got the resources that we need and others don't. We need to find a solution to that, which is not through land grabs and world wars, but by trading and sharing knowledge. Should I start singing Kumbaya now? Or do we... <laughs> but I mean, I've, I do have this this belief that we will do that at some point because the, the wars that we... The wars that are being fought... So, for example, the, there's absolutely no benefit for Russia uh, holding Ukraine. Ukraine's got more or less the same resources that they've got all over Russia. There's not, it's not, that isn't a land grab for minerals. That is just a, a war being fought from uh, this, uh, either from this, this, this belief that, you know, there's aggression going to come to them from the West, but, but more likely a, a man who's just gone a bit loopy who wants to return to the good old days of the, of Soviet Russia. So, you know, it's I don't know. I, it it's just like we we we're not seeing wars fought on uh, on resources now. But I think we will. 
Yeah, I'm, I hope you're wrong. I hope you're wrong. Anyway, back to our so back to our original question. Then, does economic isolation isolationism work? We've been a bit we've been struggling a bit this week, haven't we? Because it's such a it's such a contentious topic, and it's a bit scary as well. But does does economic isolationism work? I think we are doing the wrong thing with Russia, aren't we? I mean, although something has to be done about Putin, and we I think the the, the belief is. Um, that, you know, if we could turn his people against him, then he might go. But that's not going to happen, I don't think. That's not going to happen. No, we've got to... And that's where the case of some negotiated settlement has to has to be reached that um, enables everybody to look like they've come out winning. And then you've got the reconstruction of Ukraine. And, and the reintroduction of Russia into the rest of the world. Yeah, I think the Russians might decide to go autarkic on that front. Yeah, and that is a, an interesting issue when they're responsible for about 30% of the global grain market. Well, Australia needs to step up to the plate then, doesn't it? That they're in a they're in a position to defend. We used Australia as an example beforehand. Um, the one thing gives Australia capacity to defend is how damn far away is from everybody else. Um, but the Russians, if they decide to um, restrict their food and their minerals for their own use, then they've got the military might to back. Not the not obviously the conventional might. That's becoming a bit of a joke. But the nuclear definitely. And I wonder whether because if if it wasn't Putin, it would have been somebody else, wouldn't it? I wonder whether. Uh because it's like whether it's religion or territory, we are seeing more wars, not less. You know, you'd hope that in this connected world we would see less uh, military action. But I just wonder how much the media and social media are playing a big part in this because it's easier to play to public sentiment, isn't it? And it is the, a lot of these wars are now being fought because people are getting angry and they're getting angry because they're seeing more through social media and through, through mass media. Yeah, I mean, I, I think don't worry about social media in this uh, in this particular conflict um, in terms of causing it. But what I'm intrigued about is what's going to happen in a resource constraint world when people realise that's actually the world we're in, and that hasn't yeah. sunk in yet. All right. Well, <laughs> good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again next week. Okay. And you know what? I so we still did not answer the question: Does economic isolationism make any difference? I think Steve really wanted to make that point today, didn't he? About the fact that we face a very grave future when we're all fighting for the same amount of minerals, uh, as a limited amount of minerals, and uh, we want so much to do with it all uh, to maintain our living standards. So happy days ahead! Look, uh, we get back to more core economics next week. We're going to look at the idea of euro bonds. The European Union is looking at issuing more to help, well, to arm uh, the EU, but also look at uh, renewable energy investment in all that sort of stuff so there's less reliance on uh, getting resources from russia how are they going to do that exactly how does the european union issue bonds and get them out into the marketplace in a way that is going to uh, work uh, we'll look at the mechanics of it all uh, a whole lot of questions on that next week on the podcast join me and steve for that have yourself a good week see you next week 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.